Alright, good morning. How's everyone doing? We good? You survived marathon craziness? You're here? This is awesome. Uh, I would just like to go on record to say that I think it's ridiculous that we shut the city down for people who want to run. Um, that's ridiculous. Anyway, uh, welcome to Resonate. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. Uh, we're in the middle, actually, we're actually close to the end of this series called uh, Reconstruction. I keep almost saying deconstruction. Reconstruction. Um, and what that means, shut up, we can hit the lights just a little bit so people can see my awesome doodles. Um, this is Bobby. She actually paints for a living. I drew these. So, um, what we're doing is we're trying to reconstruct uh, our initial plan for what Resonate was supposed to be, is going to be, and is right now. Basically what that means is like the coolest thing you can do uh, as a hipster Christian these days is you can open up the Bible, you can point to any story in it, and you can totally shred it to pieces. Uh, and this is awesome, and we should be doing that. We should be looking at these stories very carefully, deconstructing them and figuring out what makes them tick. But the other part of that is that a lot of times we show up, we tear the thing down, and there's no room to build it back up again. And that's a tragic, tragic misstep. And so what we're trying to do here is give you guys the tools and give me the tools, I'm on this journey with you, um, to reconstruct once everything has kind of fallen apart. And some of us have gone through that, some of us have yet to go through that, but I guarantee you if you're walking in faith and you're walking this way of Jesus, you're gonna hit points where you're gonna feel pretty low and stuff might not make total sense. And you may have to do some like period of deconstruction to figure out what is going on. And the good news is this is actually built into the Jesus story. This is what Jesus calls building his house on the rock. So this, this is our first verse this morning. Um, this is out of Matthew 7, 24 through 25. He says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is a, like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down. These are our trials, our tribulations, our doubts. The streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yes, it, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Now, guys, he goes on to say the foolish person builds their house on the sand. That's lovely. Awesome. We have two metaphors of the rock and the sand. Now, what's very, very important about this verse and what a lot of people don't point out is that he never does this with the intention that you should get it right the first time. What's not in this verse is, therefore, everyone should hear these words and the first time build their house on the rock. Now, there's going to be plenty of times that we accidentally build this house on the sand and then we figure out, oops, <laughs> got to redo that, right? We're going to figure out that it's not always the rock. Our goal is to get there. And it's a journey, and this faith keeps moving, and it keeps rolling along. A really interesting fact, all the miracles that we have recorded in the four Gospels, which are four books in the New Testament, which Jesus speaks, <laughs> uh, all of those miracles, all the quick fixes that Jesus does for people who are, are blind, people who are crippled, people who are sick, uh, people who are dead, all of these quick fixes, everything that Jesus does, the lickety split, to fix the problem. The 12 people that walk with him the most and journey with him the most, called the disciples, he never once offers a quick fix for anything that they do. And they get it wrong all the time in the scripture. There's just like this comedy of errors. We're following these 12 guys and they keep kind of messing up. But Jesus never just waves his magic wand or does the Jedi trick and just says, you're, you're cured of that. That never actually happens. So that points us to the way of Jesus is actually walking with him and learning this stuff in deep time. When it comes to faith, unfortunately, there are no quick fixes. This is a journey, it's a walk, and we're figuring out as we go along. So that's what we've been doing with all these things in deconstruction. Let me get that, there we go. Um, 
And we've now completed, we did uh, technology. Um, we did, uh, I don't even know, that one might be the small groups. That's small groups, yes. <laughs> um, we did mentors. And we did service. And now we're on to these three little guys right here. Um, and we're going to talk about small groups this morning. And this is really important. Uh, we have a couple of small groups up and running. We want more, and we want to plug more of you guys into these. Uh, but here's the thing that needs to be said out loud and is often not said in church. You are all very brave just to set th foot through these doors. To come into a new church scenario, especially one that's this old, where we're kind of brand new, for you guys to come on board and to do this, all of you have exhibited a certain level of bravery that's a little abnormal. Because this is what it takes. Here's the journey. Nowadays, if you want to find a church, you would go online, right? And you would search uh, churches in X city, and then you would have to field through this whole list of churches to try and figure out which one aligns with your values. And then the hardest part is maybe you listen to a couple podcasts, maybe go to our site, you see that we haven't uploaded a podcast in like three months. You're like, this church must have it all together. And you listen to one of the podcasts and you go, okay, that sounds pretty good. I like what's going on. And then you might step foot through the door very anonymously on a Sunday morning, especially if you're doing this alone. And for you to muster up the courage to go from listening to something and being completely anonymous to actually stepping into a community where we're at a size right now where you can't really hide. We're going to say hi. Like, who are you? How did you find us? Right? So there's a jump there. And thank you for doing that. That's a, you, like, you have no idea how much it helps when you are physically here. Uh, but then there's this other jump that churches just assume you're ready for right off the bat, which is like, okay, you took that courage and that bravery and you stepped into a smaller church environment. And now we want to ask you to go have dinner with a group of random strangers in a random living room. Like, that is a huge ask. And we understand that. But I want to disarm that feeling of like, ooh, I might not fit in. Ooh, this might be hard. Um, and what I want to do for us this morning is talk about this idea of belonging, what it means to belong, and the baggage that we bring into almost every social situation that we have. And the way of Jesus is actually calling us outside of that anxiety, outside of that nervousness, and it's saying, hey, I want to meet you where you are, but this, this takes a village. This is not something that you're going to be able to do on your own. You're going to need people around you. Here's the thing I'm going to start and end with. There's a guy, one of my favorite human beings, his name is Jean Vanier. Jean Vanier created this community called L'Arche, and that's my uh, good French accent there. It's actually like L'Arche or whatever it is. But um, it's about 90 communities worldwide now, but back in like the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, when he started the first one in France, uh, it was just a small community that was responding to a very specific need. And that need was that at that time, there were only institutions that were like mental facilities um, or halfway houses that were just really derelict and awful to be a part of uh, that people with mental handicaps could go to. And in fact, if you didn't have a family that could take care of you, you would get put into this system and it would really wind up hurting you. Like there was just not a good response to people who had mental deficiencies in that particular point in history. And so John, who's a, a pastor and a philosopher, he latched onto this idea, and so he started this community where he found that if you could just treat these human beings as precious children of God, then their demeanor would change overnight. And what he found with people who are nervous and, and, and scared because they've only seen the institution, when he actually would come and he would hold their hand, because he said one thing that these people hadn't ever really experienced is someone embracing them, someone to touch them, to hold their hand, to hug them, to say you're loved, and you're welcome here. 
And the remarkable thing is he has like philosophy degrees and theology degrees, but he said, these people actually caught on to this faster than it took me to come to this revelation with numerous degrees. All of a sudden, they were ahead. Everyone in here, no matter where you come from, you are a precious child of God. And I know that sounds cheesy and should be written on a Hallmark card, but I'm trying to be as authentic as possible here. Deep down, I think you understand that, but there's a whole lot of baggage that keeps us from actually believing that we are fully accepted and loved and welcomed. And so I'm going to go through some like social dynamics. We're going to talk about Carl Jung. We're going to get real nerdy. And then we're going to talk about the prodigal son. And then I'm going to talk about how we talk about the prodigal son maybe too much. But then I'm going to talk about why we need to keep talking about the prodigal son. <laughs> and then we're going to go all the way back around. And I'll end with Jean one more time. Deal? All right. Let's, uh, let's pray. God, I'm so, so thankful um, that we have spaces like this, that we're able to come, uh, that we're able to, to join together in community, uh, to, to understand you just a little bit better, maybe, and then also to experience you and experience what you're doing in our community and our lives. We pray for all the people who are stuck in that awful thing you call a marathon. We hope they survive. Amen. All right. Um, so, Carl Jung. Does any, how many of you have heard of Carl Jung? Okay, yeah. So, back in like the 1920s, we didn't really have a way of categorizing the people at a party who would talk too much and the people at a party who would talk too little. Um, so, Carl Jung comes along. And he figures out that there are two camps that people are generally placed in. And he calls them introverts and he calls them extroverts. Now, for some reason, and I have no explanation for this, you'd have to ask someone uh, a lot more seasoned than I in the church history world, but for some reason, the church, more than other like places and, and companies or, or anything like that, loves to talk about these two camps. I have no idea why we've, we've latched onto this, but if you go to any church conference, you're going to find something that looks like Strength Finders or Myers-Briggs or something like that. And it's so weird. I don't know why that happened. A lot of it is because we want to find the best way to help people where they're at, and that's helpful. But then the other part of that, and the, where the pendulum slings on the other side, where we need to do some healthy deconstruction, is that we have begun to categorize people. And Carl Jung himself said, it's actually not as small as just these two camps, but those are the ones we latched onto. In fact, there was a third camp that he talked about, and he said, this is actually the largest camp that there is. And they're called ambiverts, which means they are situationally introverted or extroverted. And if that sounds like you, it probably is, because there are only actually a few true pure extroverts and a few true pure introverts and you know those extroverts if you've ever met one <laughs> right and i actually i gravitate towards these people and i, I seem very extroverted because i talk now for a living but like in a real social scenario i'm actually very introverted like I, it takes me a while to warm up and to get going but when i can stand next to a pure extrovert it's like i can just harness that energy all day long just like let them let them go is my mother-in-law in here right now good, I can get away with this. My mother-in-law is a pure extrovert. And if you take her into a dinner situation, it's the greatest thing in the world because I, as an introvert, don't have to say a word. Like, <laughs> I just like, let her go. Okay. She probably heard that and she's going to hear the podcast. Anyway, I'll ask for permission or ask for forgiveness uh, later. Um, but anyway, so I, uh, I have a morning ritual where I, I like to get up in the morning and I, I do this thing where I take my phone which is on my bed and it's usually the first thing we all look at, right? And I, I realized I was, I was doing that 
and it was kind of creating a counterproductive morning experience for me because you like kind of roll over and you start scrolling and then you're supposed to just check your email and then all of a sudden you're on Instagram or all of a sudden you're on Facebook. All this stuff begins to happen and you're like, how did I lose my morning? So I've begun to take my phone, put it on the other side of the room on a charger, let it wake me up, then I turn it, turn it away, <laughs> like, like it's an animal in the room, just like turn it away. And then I go out the door and I walk and I go grab coffee. And this is before like I shower, groom, do any of that stuff. So I'm, I'm just a mess and I'm walking to get coffee, but it kind of helps me center my day in terms of there's no dings, beeps, bloops, anything to distract me and I can kind of pray about what's gonna happen in the day and, and, and center and I can get caffeine so I can be a functional human being. Um, and just a couple days ago, I'm, I'm walking down the street on my normal route to the coffee bean, which is like two or three blocks away from my home. And I'm walking and uh, I see two, two ladies and one is coming this direction and one is kind of on the same trajectory as me and I'm a little bit farther behind. And this one lady starts, stares rolling up and you just see her like face like light up like, oh. and I realize she's about to talk to one of us. <laughs> and I hope it's not me, right? Like I have no idea, but I hope it's not me. So she lights up and then she goes and she pivots towards the girl and I'm like, glory be, keep walking. But I hear her go, Evelyn. And the girl kind of looks stunned and is just sort of like, yeah? And she goes, we, we met at Marcy's party. I, I'm so-and-so, we met at Marcy's party. How, it's so great to see you, how are you doing? And all of a sudden, this Evelyn, her demeanor changes because she realizes, oh, like you remembered me. And, and you could just see like this smile light up and they have this wonderful conversation which I'm totally eavesdropping on and I keep walking down the street to go get coffee and I think to myself, oh my gosh, like, I want more of that. Like, I want to be brave enough to go up to someone and just be like, hi, how are you? And lift them up. Because that smile was, like, incredible. I don't know how they accomplished that. So I'm walking, get further near the coffee shop, and in the horizon, I see my friend Andy. Uh, Andy is a, is a good friend of mine. Andy and I have been in a small group or a Bible study for over four years together. I know Andy. Andy has walked me through some of my life's difficult problems, the hardest thing. We're very close friends. I see Andy, and I go, oh no, I don't want to talk to Andy. <laughs> and I realized just moments ago, I said to myself, I want to, man, I want to be that guy. So I muster up all the courage I have in the world, and I look straight ahead, and I promptly turn around and go home <laughs> without the coffee, because we're a church for people who are still figuring it out, right? <laughs> I did not go. but. It points to a really specific issue in our lives, and it points to a problem that we all kind of struggle with, and that is, how do I feel accepted or belonged or confident enough to actually go have a conversation with someone? Which seems so trivial, but the fear is real. The fear is real to actually walk into a new social scenario. That's a huge thing. I grew up, I moved seven times before I turned 14, and I went to three different high schools. So I grew up kind of being the new kid. Um, and it, it just became, became sort of like a normal thing and a numb thing. Um, but every time I would have to restart, I would think I had a handle on it. And then I would get to that first day of school and I'd be so frightened out of my mind that no one's ever going to like me. I'm going to eat alone for the rest of my life. And I'll never amount to anything in this place. And it's never true. It's never true. How many times have you actually walked into something and you've been universally just excommunicated. It, it's rare, it may have happened, and I'm sorry if it did, but it's very, very rare. We actually don't need to carry this kind of fear 
and anxiety into the situations that we're moving in. We already belong. But the question is, that's, that's really easy for me to say, and we can all leave here feeling just a little bit more confident, um, but how do you actually help someone believe that they truly belong? How do, you, how do you create ownership with someone? And the answer is actually in that word, ownership. People have to feel like they have a stake in what's going on to feel like they belong. If you think about the places you truly feel the most at home, the places you really belong in and you know it, they're often places that you did something to earn that position. You got some place of status, you did some good deed, you, you racked up some sort of karma, and all of a sudden you feel like, okay, I can be accepted here. And unfortunately, too often, church works like that too, where we walk in and we feel like, oh, I have to volunteer, I have to tithe, I have to do this, I have to do that, and then, you know, then maybe I can feel like I'm in this space and I belong. But that is the antithesis of the whole reason that Jesus came and died and rose again. Because grace flies in the face of that idea and says, no, 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 you don't get it. You already belong and you don't have to do anything. You're a precious child of God. And the more I say it this morning, hopefully the less cheesy it gets because that word precious is awful, but it's the only one we have. You are a precious child of God and you already belong. But in life, we have to create these systems that help people do that. And so in a lot of situations, we, we have membership. Right? So we say, hey, you can become a member here. But a member, it, that very word describes something you can lose. It describes something that like, if, you, if you do X, we're not going to tell you what X is, but X is kind of unwritten, and you know what X is, and if you do X, you're out. You can no longer be a member. That is not what happens in the kingdom. Jesus never speaks of membership, not one single time. But what he calls us all is something radically different and something we actually have to hold on to. He calls us children of God. Children of God. So you already belong because you are a child of God. And I know that's a really difficult like, premise to get your head around, especially if you've had any sort of family issues. A lot of times you're like, I don't want to be a child of anything. <laughs> right? But I want, to th I want you to change that view of it to this. When I was 12 years old, my parents sent me to fat camp. That's true. <laughs> the, he'll deny it, but it was a fat camp. Um, it was a hiking camp in which I was chubby. Yes, and so now, now I have the microphone. He can't deny anything. So I'm a little bit chubby. It's a family tradition. We just moved back from Amsterdam, and like, guys, the processed food here is mm, divine. So I was just going for it, right? Uh, and I get to this camp, uh, and it's a wilderness camp, and so basically you would spend two days, uh, they get you, because you get there, and there's like water skis, and it's fun, and it's like two days of this camping experience, there's a lake, and like, oh yeah, fun. But then they tell you, oh, by the way, on Monday, you're going to leave for a five-day backpacking trip in the wilderness, and there's going to be a 17-year-old counselor taking you out there, and it'll be in groups of like four or five. What? So, we plan the trip, you go on the backpacking trip, and you come back. Now, I loved being at that two-day two window, <laughs> And it was really difficult for me to be on those five-day things because, again, processed foods. And to make matters worse, I could not get my hands on any of these precious processed foods because it was in the Adirondacks and there was nothing there until I met my friend, Johnny. Johnny. Johnny's dad, and Johnny was the only local, Johnny's dad owned the only deli in the center of this little town called Adams in the Adirondacks. And it was the closest town we had. It had the only ice cream shop, the only video store, and the only deli. And we went into the deli one day. And John's dad owns this deli, and he's just this, like, boisterous, awesome, like, give you a big hug type of guy. 
Uh, and he looks at John and he says, okay, guys, yeah, whatever you want. And, and I went, I went, excuse me? <laughs> anyway, no, 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 anything you want. And then I, I follow Johnny as he's just pulling things off of shelves and throwing it into a bag. And I'm like taking one little thing and he, I get to the end of the counter and he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I, I, don't, I don't know, I didn't want to like go over there. He's like, go, go get more stuff. And I was like a little bit bashful, but smart. So I was like, can you get me more stuff? And he's like, yes. <laughs> so he goes and he gets me more stuff. Now, that picture of what are you doing? Why, why didn't you just bring that? That is a perfect picture of what I think God is looking at us all the time. He's going, there's so much here. Why, why are you just doing this? Do you think you don't, you think you don't, get to enjoy this stuff? Do you think you're awful? Do you think like, you're going to get in trouble? What is it? This idea of grace is freely given, and it's often not deserved. When we look at um, the old temple, uh, which was the center of religious life, it's where God actually dwelled. And the, and the first temple was built by Solomon. And you can read about it um, in the Old Testament. And basically, uh, that temple becomes just the site of all religious activity. You, you have to go through the temple to actually be ritually cleaned, to have your sins forgiven. This was the, the place that you would have to physically go to. And inside of this temple, there was a place that God was known to dwell in. It was literally so holy. It was called the Holy of Holies, which is an oxymoron, but the Holy of Holies. And there was only one person that could actually step into the Holy of Holies, and that was the high priest. And he could only do it on one day of the year, and that was Yom Kippur. It was the second most sacred day of the year uh, besides the Passover. And on Yom Kippur, he would study for months, and he would have to go in, and he would have to say the unnameable name of God, or the unspeakable name of God, which was Yahweh. But it didn't actually have, it was always written out, it didn't actually have a pronunciation because you weren't allowed to say it. So, the priest would have to practice this in his head, for months, like I think it sounds like this, like, hmm, 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 right? Imagine reading a word in another language that you have no idea how it's actually said, but you gotta come in there and you gotta nail it. Now, the pressure only gets worse because the priest knows that if you see God, to see God is, is a death sentence in their religion. This is what happens to Moses and Elijah. He says, you cannot see me, but you can see my back or my afterward. You can see where I have been. But if you were to see me, you would not survive. So the priest is walking into the presence of the Holy of Holies where God's supposed to dwell. And he knows that if he nails the word, there's a chance that God may reveal himself, which you're supposed to be super stoked about until you realize I might die in there. Now, this is true. This is fascinating. The priest was actually so scared and they built this in because if he did die in there, no one besides a high priest the next year would be able to enter into the Holy of Holies and grab the body. You would be left there for a full year. So what the priest began to do is tie a rope around their leg. And so when they went into the Holy of Holies, if someone heard a thud, they would pull the old priestie out of there, right? This was the idea of being in the presence of God. But here's the crazy part. As the priest would walk into that room, if you actually say that word, Yahweh, you realize it's, it's the exact same sound as breathing. It's Yah, Yah. It's inhale, exhale. And so look at the metaphor there, guys. As you walk into the presence of God, you need only breathe to belong. You need only breathe to belong. And another thing I learned this week, which I didn't know, was that it's also the exact same sound as screaming. 
So when we're looking at the craziness that's going on in our world today and we're like, God, where are you now? We have to also realize that he's in the breath and he's in the screen. God is not absent from either one of those. And that's a difficult concept to get our heads around, but we have to realize that it's a rhythm, it's a breath, and that we need only breathe. How many social situations are we walking into with a rope tied around our leg? Going in, going, I'm gonna die in here, <laughs> and I need an exit plan. How much baggage are we taking into our social scenarios when God is like, no, 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 no. All you need to do is breathe. You are fully loved, and you are fully accepted right now. And there's one story, and it's one that is overplayed. It's like one of the greatest hits of the Bible. We're going to hit it today, and then I'm going to turn this back around and explain why we still need this story. Uh, but it's the prodigal son. And the prodigal son um, goes like this. I'm going to tell the first half of the story, and then we'll get to the scripture. Sorry, my iPad is all the way back on good old Carl Jung. Okay, so Prodigal Son works like this. There are two sons um, and a father. We have three major characters here. And the father, it, it seems from the story, is kind of a wealthy man. Um, and the story is the younger son uh, comes up to the father and he says, Father, I would like my half of the inheritance right now, and I would like to go. And in this time in history, this is like, this is like you would not approach your father with this sort of a request. One, it's asking your father and basically telling your father, I wish you were dead. And culturally, that was really, really true. So the response of the father most of the time, if this ever even came close to coming up, would be you would receive a beating from your father. <laughs> that was the real response, right? But this father, for some reason, is gracious enough that he says, okay, I mean, if that's what you want, okay. And he gives his son the money, and his son goes off, and he lives this wild life. And it says he goes off to a far distant land, which basically means he's gone far enough away outside of his family's boundaries that he's lost all of his culture, all of himself. There's no longer any ties, and he's making an entirely new life. So this is not only a slap in the face to his father, but to his entire tradition and family. In this tribal system, you would have grown up in this. You would have stayed in this. And this was like your scene. This was your thing. You did not leave this. And he goes, nope, I'm going. So he leaves and he goes off into a distant land, which is just to say he's cut ties with his family completely. Spends all of his money, squanders it. You've heard this story a thousand times. I'm sorry, I'm gonna try and get through it as fast as possible. Uh, squanders it, comes back because he realizes I've got, I've, I've got no more money. I've, I'm, I'm in shambles here. I'm working on a pig farm and I'm, I'm longing to eat the pods that the pigs are eating, but they won't even let me do that. But, he gets it in his head, how good did my father's servants have it? They got three square meters a day. I remember the room they were staying in. It was awesome. So I got to get back over there and beg my father. Just if I get down on my hands and knees and beg, maybe he'll take me back as one of the servants or even a slave. And so he does this. He, he heads back and he's rehearsing his lines and he's going to go to his father and he's going to beg. And he's got all the right words to say. And then this is where the scripture picks up as he's headed home. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, 
Bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he is He has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered all your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, if you've been around church at all, you've probably heard this story as many times as possible. We're obsessed with this story, and we should be, because the Bible is actually obsessed with this story, and God is obsessed with this story every single day. This is not a new story. Jesus is just reframing it. He's returning it. He's he's changing it on its head. Because the story of Abraham is like this story. The story of Isaac is like this story. The story uh, of Jacob especially is like this story. The story of Jacob goes like this. There's a young man who also has a brother and tricks his father into giving him the inheritance instead of his older brother and then runs off into a distant land, encounters God, wrestles with him, and then has to cross a sea and go face his brother. And his brother, instead of killing him or instead of hurting him, greets him with a hug. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's moving that Jacob story from even a, like, that was gracious enough, right? But now he's moving the needle from the Jacob story, which is a hug and an embrace from your brother, you're welcome, to all of the sudden, There's a new character giving you the hug, and his name is Father, and he represents God. You've gone from being an estranged brother to a loved child in the story that Jesus is telling right now. That is crazy town awesome. And it all has to do with this idea of turning around and go to the distant land and come back and return. There are three returns in the story of the prodigal son. Three, which is a biblical number, so that's fun. So let's move on. There are three returns. The first return is the prodigal coming back from squandering his life in a distant land. The second return is the older brother returning from the field, his own distant land. He didn't have to go far to get just as lost as the younger brother because he was lost in something a lot more deep and a lot more complex, and that's called tradition and rules and law and dare I say it, religion. But he was still lost, and he has to return. And then the greatest return of them all is the father actually returning the title of child back to this prodigal son. He returns it to him. The child comes back expecting to be a servant, and the father says, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. You are my child, and you are dead, but now you are and that dead thing was actually a real deal like idea because if you did something wrong in an ancient Jewish family, 
If you did anything wrong, you broke the law, you would have to be excommunicated from the family, and they, even though you were still living alive and well, they would actually do something called sit shiva for you, which is the idea that they would throw a funeral in your honor. So it's the weirdest tradition of basically just being like, don't we hate that family member? Let's throw them a funeral. It's dark stuff. They might have actually done that. So when he says he's dead, they meant it. To them, this child was just dead. And now he's alive, and we have to party. We have to throw a party. That's grace. Now, there's a picture that exemplifies this, but unfortunately, uh, our projector is not so hot. <laughs> so this is Rembrandt's um, picture of the prodigal son. And if you've actually seen this photo, this is going to mean a whole lot more to you. But you can kind of make this out. This here is the father. This is the prodigal. And then that is the older brother. And there are two more shadowy figures in the back here that we can't really make out. But I swear they're there. I've been struck with this picture uh, when I was looking for something to show what this looked like. A lot of it has all of this movement. There are other paintings that have like this drastic, I'm running towards, I'm grabbing, and that was awesome, and I love that urgency. But there was something about this one that I couldn't get out of my head, which is that the father is just so stable. And when he holds the son, he holds him right here up to his chest. And I don't think that's an accident because the son's head is turned this way and his ear is right there on his chest. And what this loving embrace says when he holds his child and he says, no, 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 you don't get it. You are a child of God and you are fully loved and you are fully accepted. He brings him towards his heart. And he puts his ear up to his heart so that you can literally hear the heartbeat of God and the heartbeat of God is this celebration. Because we know from that story that the older brother didn't witness this embrace. He just heard the party going on and got furious. So what this is a metaphor for is that this is the older brother looking into that party and saying, I don't want anything to do with that. This is tragic, tragic stuff. The older brother had every chance to return just as that younger brother did, and just as the father did to return the dignity and life back to his child, but he refused because he couldn't hear that music, because he couldn't hear that heartbeat of God. And he refused to step into what that is called, which is the divine embrace. That means that the church and us, we're very good at being observers and looking like the brother is down into that divine embrace, down into that hug. We're very good at looking at it, understanding what it is, explaining it to people. That's all well and good, but when's the last time you actually knelt before that divine embrace and included yourself within it? All the light shining on you and all the flaws and all the ridiculousness of our lives, and we just bring it, we fall to our knees, we fall into the heartbeat of God and say, I'm your child again. That is true faith. That is true love. That is what Jesus is all about. And a lot of times it takes that embrace. Back to our good friend Jean Vignet. Jean Vignet talked about that embrace and what it's about. That holding someone close can actually give them dignity and give them back their humanity when they thought that it was lost. And he has this quote, it's amazing. He says, you know, what we found here is that every person is precious, and yet no one can actually believe that they are precious unless they have people around them who believe that they are precious, who believe that they're actually worth everything. 
And the best way we have to describe that is an embrace. It's, it's past words, it's past everything else. And so he says, it's about holding hands. Because if someone has enough hands to hold, they can never get lost in the first place. That is the divine embrace, my friends. That is the idea of turning around, rethinking everything, and running towards the Father. It is no longer a Father that we need to pull a rope around our leg to walk into the presence of. Now it's a Father who's actively looking for you and is running down the hilltop to find you. This is why we still need this story, and this is why this story should be said all the time. Because this is the whole point of what it's about. It's about there's nothing you can do to separate you from this love. Even though you do a really good job of putting up the barriers yourself, God is still actively looking for you and trying to run at you at any given speed. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Uh, thank you for this story that describes the type of love that you exude and offer, which is freely given and, and just doesn't make any sense. Thank you for, for loving us like that and for uh, including us in this divine embrace. Amen. Amen.